Random Thoughts for Valentine's Day, 2004. Today is a holiday invented by greeting card companies to make people feel like crap. I ditched work today. Took a train out to Montauk. I don't know why. I'm not an impulsive person. I guess I just woke up in a funk this morning. I gotta get my car fixed. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 217, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And have we been here before? Well, hopefully you have, because welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener, whether you're a regular returning listener who doesn't remember listening to this podcast before, it doesn't matter. I'm just really grateful that you're here, that you're choosing to listen to this podcast because maybe there's a sliver of your memory that remembers that you have listened to Verbal Diorama before. Maybe I'm just that unforgettable. Who knows? I'm, as always, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a movie about love, loss, memory, the ethics of removal of memory and basically how we should work through our pain and not try and dull it with other things. But before I jump into that, I just want to say, as always, a huge thank you to the wonderful reception to previous episodes of this podcast and to this podcast in general. Recent episodes of this podcast included The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the most recent one was Night of the Living Dead from 1968. And those were obviously two very different films, two very different episodes. And again, I'm kind of hitting you with another bit of tonal whiplash because we're going from very classic zombie horror to something completely different, a romantic drama sci-fi kind of thing. But, you know, just to get a link in there, it is another of the movie. So we've had Night of the Living Dead and now we've got Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Wait, what are we here to do? What? I don't know. It just seems to have disappeared from my memory. Um. Oh yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. The ultimate question this movie asks, and it's something that comes up all the time. Whenever a relationship ends, someone will always say to you, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. And I think this movie is basically asking that question. Is it actually better to have loved and lost than never loved at all? 
here's the trailer for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I'm Clementine, by the way. I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. No jokes about my name. You like? Oh. You look like a tangerine. trying to figure out, did I have sex with someone tonight? And how do you get people to like you? Here at Lacuna, we have a safe technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Is there any risk of brain damage? Technically, the procedure is brain damage. It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. I'm in my head already, aren't I? That baby's history. It's all being wiped away. They're erasing you, Clem. You'll be gone by morning. Whoa, careful. What? What? Step back. Broach the guy. I loved you on this day. Please, let me keep this memory. The eraser guys are coming here. Wake yourself up. We're working like gangbusters. I need somewhere deeper. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off. He's off the mat. You seem to have lost him for a moment. Oh, dear. Are you sure? I'm so sure. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I want my mommy. This is sort of warped. Joel Barish awakes disheveled. Impulsively, he skips work, heading instead on the train to Montauk. On this chilly February day, a woman in orange, hair dyed blue, chats him up. She's Clementine. She's bold and erratic. He's shy and sad, but by the end of the day, he likes her and she likes him. They ride back together on the train and feel an intense connection to each other. After, as he drops her off, she asks to sleep at his place and she runs up to get her toothbrush. But their meeting was not by chance and they have a history. A history that neither of them remember. Let's run through the cast of this movie. Just quickly, we have Jim Carrey as Joel Barish, Kate Winslet as Clementine Krasinski, Kirsten Dunst as Mary Svavo, Mark Ruffalo as Stan Fink, Elijah Wood as Patrick Wirtz, and Tom Wilkinson as Dr. Howard Mearswack. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind has a screenplay by Charlie Kaufman, story by Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, and Pierre Bismuth, and was directed by Michelle Gondry. And it'll be 20 years next year since Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and it's ironic, really, that a film about memory and the removal of memories seems to linger so long after you see it. And it also is the sort of movie that definitely benefits multiple rewatches. I've seen this movie several times throughout my life and I will always see something new in the background, something new in the story, some new theme that I didn't think of before. And that really is the eternal testament to the power of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I'm just going to say it up front. I adore this movie. Uh, I think it's genuinely terrific. It's not a movie that I usually cover on this podcast. I don't tend to do much drama on this podcast. And I think it's just because I don't gravitate so much towards drama in film. 
again, it's probably something like horror that I probably should do more of. But this movie always just appealed to me as soon as I saw it because it's so much more than that. It's really about the human experience. And it is basically a story about loneliness, love, relationships, destruction and pain. And that can resonate with mostly all of us. Because who among us hasn't asked what they do to remove the pain and hurt of an ex? I'm sure I'm not the only person who's questioned whether soulmates actually exist. Are we constantly drawn to the same people or people who remind us of those people? And ultimately, would we choose the instant gratification of memory removal or the constant pain and sadness associated to that person leaving your life? And it's something that I think about a lot, mostly from this movie, to be honest, but also from my own relationship history, ultimately because it's always caused me a lot of pain and heartache. And usually I end up complaining to friends about it. Seriously, my friends are the best. But really, that's kind of how the concept of this movie came about. A friend of artist and writer Pierre Bismuth complained to him about her boyfriend. He asked her if she would erase him from her memory if such an option was available. And she said, yeah, probably I would. Although, to be honest, it's probably not a decision you can make in the split second. Bismuth told his friend Michelle Gondry and together they wrote the outline of a story along with Bismuth's idea to send out cards to people as an experiment to suggest that someone they knew had had them erased from their memory. And this is obviously something that we see in the finished film as well. No such experiment took place in real life, but Michelle Gondry approached Charlie Kaufman in the late 90s with the idea and together they would write a short pitch and this pitch would start a small bidding war for the concept which was won by Propaganda Films, who purchased it in June 1998 for a seven-figure sum. Kaufman didn't start writing the screenplay immediately, though. Instead, he worked on Adaptation, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and Human Nature, the latter with Michel Gondry, which was his directorial debut. At around the same time, though, Christopher Nolan, remember him, small-time director, he was working on Memento, and Memento, if you've not seen it, is a film with a fairly similar achronological structure and is also based around memories. And Memento, which, to be fair, is something that I've always wanted to cover on this podcast, so maybe I should, just to link it to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Memento was a big success. It brought Christopher Nolan to prominence. It made $40 million on its $9 million budget. And when Memento was released... The buzz surrounding it, plus the production of human nature and the writing of adaptation, was starting to affect Kaufman's confidence. So much so that he was adamant that he wasn't going to do Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He ended up being talked back into it by producer Steve Golin of Propaganda Films. But Kaufman wanted to ensure that there was no influence from Memento and the science fiction aspects were played down to enhance the drama and the romance angles. The story was going to be about the relationship between Joel and Clementine, not so much the technology that erased their memories, which is why the movie doesn't get bogged down with too much science. It's similar as well with the comparisons with Total Recall. Kaufman has never seen the movie, but he had read a lot of Philip K. Dick stories and he would admit to liking the work, but never seeing it as a direct influence to Eternal Sunshine. He also acknowledges the similarities between Eternal Sunshine and Boris Vian's novels The Red Grass and Heart Snatcher, which both centre on memories and how we deal with them, and has lead characters named Joel and Clementine, but states it wasn't a direct influence to Eternal Sunshine at the Spotless Mind. And when you talk about writing a movie like this, it's not a simple film to write, or direct, or 
the visual effects or act. Nothing in this movie was easy or straightforward. Starting with the script, Charlie Kaufman had a great deal of difficulty writing the script because characters could make references to memories that had already been erased in later scenes, as well as because he had to show the memories, Joel's reactions to the memories, and Joel interacting with Clementine outside of those memories. Kaufman solved the first issue by allowing Joel to be conscious and comment on his memories, and he solved the second issue by causing the memories to deteriorate rather than completely disappearing before Joel then awakens from the procedure and then the memories are completely gone. Mostly, though, Charlie Kaufman was interested in writing a movie about a relationship and not a romance. This wasn't going to be a rom-com, but it would contain elements of both. He didn't want the actual erasure of memory to overshadow the relationship aspect. This was almost like an anti-rom-com in some ways. They're still the typical meet-cute, but we don't know at the time that this isn't their first meeting. And the film toys with the idea of soulmates in an interesting way, in that you'll always find that person, but that person won't necessarily be good for you. The value of memory and how one might be different without regrets were more important to Kaufman. The film portrays the idea of therapeutic memory erasure as a bad thing, and his approach seems to value regret over ignorance. Kaufman has the procedure's inventor and practitioner refer to it as quote-unquote brain damage, and Gondry presents the treatment's subconscious effect in a way that is actually as traumatic as physically possible. During the initial stages of writing, Kaufman didn't have to take any notes from the studio because the pitch had been purchased by Propaganda Films, but Propaganda Films was then purchased by USA, which later joined up with Focus Films. As a result, the ownership of the movie changed several times, so he didn't have to actually deal with studio input until the very end, and by that point, the studio didn't really have a great deal of say. It goes without saying that the studio were a little bit nervous about this movie. Clearly, they didn't have to be. While the original name for the screenplay was 18 words long, Kaufman has never actually divulged the actual name, just the length. He chose Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from the 1717 poem Eloisa to Abelard by Alexander Pope, not Pope Alexander, inspired by the 12th century story of Heloise Dargentoul's illicit love for her teacher, Peter Abelard, a man 20 years her senior. Their marriage led to him being castrated by her family and joining a monastery and her becoming a nun. Years later, a letter from him came to her via a friend. Her love for him was reinvigorated and they would start to share letters, despite the pain it caused them both. In Pope's poem, Eloisa confesses to the suppressed love that his letter has reawakened. She recalls their former life together and its violent aftermath, comparing the happy state of the blameless Vestal with her own reliving of past passion and sorrow. How happy is the blameless Vestal's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot? Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Since relations between them are now impossible, she advises him to distance himself from her memory and looks forward to the release of death when one kind grave will reunite them. While Kaufman's script would never end with either Joel or Clementine experiencing the sweet release of death, it did originally end with the characters not ending up together, with Joel choosing to walk away from Clementine. But to make any ending work, or indeed the whole story, you needed your cast. And while Nicolas Cage was Charlie Kaufman's ideal choice for Joel, Cage would be in high demand at the time and Michelle Gondry would visit the set of the comedy Bruce Almighty, starring Jim Carrey, and notice that the usually chipper and comedic Carrey would be reserved and quiet between takes. 
Gondry saw Joel Barish in those moments and approached Carey to play the lead in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. They wanted a normal guy, not super handsome, sorry Jim, or unattainable, just an ordinary guy you could identify with. And Jim Carey had played against type before in The Truman Show, which is excellent by the way, and Man on the Moon, the 2000 biopic on Andy Kaufman, no relation to Charlie Kaufman, where Carey maintained a rigid method acting schedule, remaining in character as Andy Kaufman both on and off set. He was still mostly well known for his comedic roles like A Central Pet Detective and The Mask, but Gondry saw a leading man with vulnerabilities hiding behind his comedy persona to have a very extroverted, exuberant comedic actor play the role of a very restrained, introspective and introverted character. Before shooting even began, Gondry feared he would lose his leading man. He foresaw the failure of his first movie, Human Nature, before it even opened in American cinemas. Gondry made Carey sign a napkin in a restaurant in 2002 before the release of Human Nature, promising to continue working on Eternal Sunshine, even if Human Nature bombed at the box office, which it did. Carey honoured his written agreement and was cast as Joel, and it would be an experience that he'd struggle with. But I'm going to come back to that. For Clementine, singer-actor Bjork was sent the script but didn't feel like she could take on such a mentally demanding role. Many actresses were auditioned for Clementine but only Kate Winslet offered criticism on the script that it was a little bit repetitive in some places and they shouldn't shy away from being more sentimental. Because if you think about it, that's what the character of Clementine would do. Winslet was mostly known for Titanic, obviously, low-budget films and period dramas. The studio wanted an, another unnamed actress who would go on to win an Oscar, but Gondry refused to recast Winslet, who would not only be Oscar-nominated for the role of Clementine, but would also win an Oscar in the near future anyway. And let's be honest, there's no such thing as a bad Kate Winslet performance, but for me, this is up there as one of my favourites of hers of all time. Clementine is so flawed, but she's realistically flawed. Her tones change as often as her hair, the colours of which were intentional. Not only does it show you where in the relationship timeline the scene actually takes place, but it also details her emotional situation as well as the seasons of the year. Blue Ruin, Red Menace, Agent Orange and Green Revolution. So Green Revolution or Spring is when she first met Joel, which signified the start of a blossoming love affair. When Joel had his memory of Clementine erased, the very last memory was Clem in green hair, which meant a fresh, clean slate for the couple thereafter, supposedly. Red Menace is summer, the honeymoon stage, a summer romance. Clem's hair is red during the most passionate and adventurous part of their relationship, where they're the most happy. Agent Orange is autumn, which is basically the fallout. Just like autumnal leaves, the relationship starts to dull out and tempers start to rise. This is a pivotal part of the narrative where Clementine decides to erase Joel from her memory. And Blue Ruin is winter, where the icy barriers solidified the distance between the two. And this is the post-lacuna procedure phase, where Clementine has already erased Joel from her memory. So from Joel's point of view, Clementine with blue hair was the last memory he had of her before he decided to have the procedure. It's worth adding as well that these were all wigs. And they are probably some of the most realistic wigs because you never question that it's not Kate Winslet's actual hair. Winslet loved the red hair the most and actually considered dyeing her hair that colour for real. But with the erratic filming schedule, it was impossible to keep dyeing Winslet's hair the correct shade. And so wigs were easier to use. 
After six weeks of planning, the three-month filming of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which took place mostly in and around New York, started in mid-January 2003. It mostly took place in a former US Navy base in New Jersey, where they recreated crucial scenes, including Joel's flat and his mother's 1950s-style kitchen. Improvisation was encouraged on set, mostly. Michelle Gondry would say, quote, What was funny is I had to bring Jim Carrey so far down to the point where he couldn't improvise or joke too much. But then there are scenes where he's sleeping in the bed and he has to be laying there very still because he's in the frame. And he'd see Mark Ruffalo and Kirsten Dunst be crazy and improvising and going off script. And he got so frustrated. He said, why are they improvising? You told me the opposite. And I had to explain to him that it was different for his character. Sometimes I had to talk to Kate Winslet in a different room to tell her, go as big as you want. This is a comedy. And to Jim, I'd say, this is a drama, not a comedy. Jim was very frustrated while we were shooting it. But after that, we became closer and friendlier. And now he remembers it as a great experience, unquote. Which is funny because going back to Carey, he did not have fun on set. As the quote suggests, he was frustrated by the shoot, not only because he wasn't allowed to improvise, but also by the shooting conditions. Michel Gondry would want to continue filming, despite objections from his actors. The scene in which Joel is remembering being bathed in the sink by his mother was particularly difficult, with Winslet struggling with feeling ill, and Carey wanting to protect his co-star, demanding Gondry stop shooting. Tensions would flare up, but ultimately it seemed to get one of the best performances out of Carey of his whole career. Gondry wasn't like most directors. He admitted he wanted to create and foster confusion and panic among his actors. He stopped saying action and just filmed whatever. Two handheld cameras would be rolling almost non-stop, with reportedly 36,000 feet of film shot a day. Gondry would also direct one actor without directing the other. Having Winslet punch Carey in the arm spontaneously on the train, a real moving train, by the way, which could only be shot while they were actually moving, Carey's shock and surprise in the movie is genuine. Nevertheless, it was a taxing shoot for everyone with many 17-hour days, often outdoors and in freezing cold conditions. Even the crew suffered for their art, with Gondry originally wanting exclusively to use available light only, and use no additional lighting for scenes, basically to shoot in daylight only. Cinematographer Ellen Curis would instead use light sparingly, lighting the rooms instead of the actors. Throughout the shoot, Curis and her longtime gaffer, John Nadeau, would jerry-rig units that would provide ample illumination, but would also fly under Gondry's definition of film light. They had different assortments of light bulbs, refrigerator bulbs, small bulbs on hand dimmers, and they would hide those behind furniture or lampshades. Traditional dollies were also not used on this movie. Instead, the production used sled and chariot dollies as well as wheelchairs. As Joel buries deeper into his own memories in a vain attempt to hide what remains of Clementine from the Lacuna technicians, the scene's quality of light becomes distinctly different. Ellen Curis would explain, quote, We didn't want to make it a huge departure from the film's look, but we wanted to signal to the audience that we were in the tunnel of the mind. Michelle's visual analogy, which was brilliant, was inspired by the French film La Boucher. A car is driving on a deserted country road at night, and you can only see what's illuminated by the throw of the headlights. When you're remembering something, you don't get a full picture. You only see certain glimpses of the scene in your head, depending on what you're focusing on. So for our memory light, we attached a single clip light to the top of the camera for closer shots. We used a par can to similar effect in the wide shots, unquote. At some key moments, the filmmakers simply let the frame go completely dark. 
Gondry really wanted it to feel like a European film inspired by French New Wave, and many of those have shots where everything is dark and you can only glimpse one thing in the frame. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind would also focus primarily on in-camera practical effects where possible with minimal CGI. They would use forced perspective to make it look like a child-sized Joel is hiding underneath his mother's table. The house on the beach flooding is a real house built on the beach that's actually flooding with the tide coming in. Scenes with multiple instances of Joel and Clementine in long takes are actually accomplished with the actors either going through hidden doors or simply going behind camera in real time. For the memorable shot of Clementine sliding backwards into darkness across the floor of Grand Central Station, crew members simply pulled Kate Winslet with some wires. Virtually all of the film's effects are done in camera. They used forced perspective, hidden space, spotlighting and synchronised sound, split focus and clever continuity editing throughout the film to add texture to Joel's memories. And just as a little tidbit of information, lacuna means a blank space. A tabula rasa, if you will. That's a little Buffy reference for all of you Buffy fans out there. You know the episode tabula rasa. And there was a lot of stuff that was either cut from the script or cut from the finished film. And one of the most interesting things is the idea that a broken relationship isn't the only reason that you might want your memory erased. The movie also originally contained scenes of other people undertaking the procedure for a variety of other reasons. We do see this briefly in the waiting room. There's a woman who's clearly mourning the loss of her dog. But the other reasons that I found include a war veteran removing the memories of war and a sexual abuse survivor removing the instances of their abuse. But they felt that it was too unrelated to the central story and was eventually cut. But speaking of memories, let's segue to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. And if you don't know, if you've not been here before or you've forgotten what that is, it is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Basically, for no reason other than he is the best of men. And I feel like this one's pretty obvious because if you're talking about memories, clearly you need to go to a Keanu Reeves movie that has memory as part of the plot. So Johnny Mnemonic's plot is literally about implanted memories as sensitive data. And Johnny as a character would delete his childhood memories to gain storage space in his brain to put additional data in his brain which is then extracted by a third party. Now, I've not seen Johnny Mnemonic for a very long time, I'll be honest, but apparently there is a black and white cut that's recently been released that is supposedly very good. So I might have to check that out, but it's a pretty obvious obligatory Keanu reference and definitely not as bad as the one that I did last week. One of the most memorable things about this movie isn't just the movie itself, but also the music of this movie. And when asked why he chose John Brion for the score, Michel Gondry replied, quote, I find that his melodies are very original and he has this thing he shares with Charlie and me. We're all a little unbalanced, a little unsatisfied with the world. He's very skilled and he understood our way of looking at things. So when we thought a part of the score needed work, he knew how to fix it. And very few people can work this way because they think they're being mistreated, unquote. And it is a truly beautiful score. It's so ethereal and magical and just invokes memories, I guess, which is, again, kind of ironic because whenever I hear the music for this movie, it just invokes memories of this movie. Additional music was provided by the Polyphonic Spree, The Willows and Don Nelson. The soundtrack was released on the 16th of March 2004 and the focal point is a cover 
of the Corgis, Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime, with instrumentals by Brion and vocals by Beck. And this song is, again, so very memorable of this movie in particular. So Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was released on the 19th of March 2004, the same week as the Dawn of the Dead remake. And that was completely unintentional, by the way. I talked a little bit about that movie in last week's episode on Night of the Living Dead. Dawn of the Dead would open first that week. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind would open seventh that week. And it was also up against movies like The Passion of the Christ, Taking Lives, Starsky and Hutch, Secret Window and Hidalgo. It would never get any higher than seventh in the US box office, but for a small budget movie, it actually did really good business. So on its $20 million budget, it took $8 million in its first week alone. And domestically, over its entire run, it took $34.4 million in the US, with $39.6 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $74 million. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I don't think I need to tell you that it received extremely strong critical reviews for its plot structure and performances, and also received various accolades in different award categories. At the 77th Academy Awards, the film won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. It also received a Best Original Screenplay Award from BAFTA, as well as a BAFTA Award for Best Editing, along with four other nominations, including the BAFTA Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role and the BAFTA Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Carey and Winslet, respectively. It was also nominated for four Golden Globes, Best Film, Musical or Comedy, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Musical or Comedy, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Musical or Comedy, and Best Screenplay. Kate Winslet was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress and went on to win the Best Actress Award at the Empire Awards, London Film Critics, and the Online Film Critics Society. Her portrayal of Clementine Krasinski in the movie was ranked as the 81st Greatest Film Performance of All Time by Premier Magazine, and it remains her all-time favourite role in a career of all-time favourite roles. Out of a total of 97 award nominations, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind won 34. There have been attempts to recapture the magic of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, including a Broadway adaptation and a potential follow-up, with Kaufman having the concept for a sequel, according to Gondry. There was also a planned TV adaptation in 2016, which ultimately fell apart. Neither Gondry nor Carey were involved, but they both gave the idea their blessing. Let's go into some social media thoughts, because I like to ask what people think of the movies that I'm featuring, and I like to ask that on Patreon and pretty much all over social media. We're going to start with the patrons of this podcast, and we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy, who says, Remember when Jim Carey used to make good movies? Outside of this, unfortunately, I don't remember much, as I saw this upon release, but I have a vague notion it was really good. Wait. That treatment removed the memory of this movie and not the terrible breakup I experienced in college. Get those memories back. Not the breakup, I mean the movie. And I'm sure you haven't forgotten, but if you have, Andy also has his own podcast. It's called... What's it called again? I'm only joking. It's called Geek Salad and... They are basically your one-stop shop for all of your geeky, nerdy needs. I will put some information for Geek Salad in the show notes for this episode. We also have a patron comment from Ali who said, I first saw this film as a young woman and struggled to get it, being used to watching formulaic Hollywood and also being used to slapstick Jim Carrey performances. 
This film grows with you. It's fresh, strange, original, beautiful, thought-provoking. Basically, all the words you'd use to describe verbal diorama. I'm joking, but thank you, Ali. We have a comment from Vern who says, Being a big Michelle Gondry fan from his work on music videos by Daft Punk, Bjork and the White Stripes, I was so happy he put his visual trademarks in this movie about a guy trying to forget his girlfriend. All the effects are mostly practical and I love it so much for having it. You and me both, Vern. And Vern also has his own podcast. It is called Cinema Recall. And Cinema Recall is basically the podcast that you go to for iconic moments in films. And I know that Vern has a huge love for cult movies. And to be honest, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is definitely one of those cult movies that I think everyone gravitates to. So I'll also put information for Cinema Recall in the show notes too. And the final patron comment, I remembered him this week. It is from Derek. And Derek says, This wonderful sci-fi romance is also a deep deconstruction on the philosophy of the self. Does the self sustain throughout a life? Or are we constantly being reinvented into a new self? If memory is the connective tissue in forming a sustaining self, what happens when technology can alter those memories? I think this movie ultimately says that love is not bound to memory and the love between Joel and Clementine binds these two selves regardless if they remember or not. It's beautiful and weird. And really, if you do want deep deconstructions on the philosophies, history and mythology of everyday pop culture, then you should pop over to Derek's podcast. It is called The Midnight Myth and it is wonderful. And if that sentence made you think, wow, this guy's really smart, then you should check out his podcast. He hosts it with his wife, Laurel. They are both incredibly smart people and I learn so much from them every episode I listen to. I'll put information for The Midnight Myth in the show notes too. We're going to move over to Twitter and we're going to start with at real underscore Mr. Positive who said, An amazing film went over and above my expectations. At Movie Shelf Pod said, I remember thoroughly enjoying it and finding it fascinating when I first watched it. However, it doesn't stick with me nor prompt a desire to rewatch it. At SWA Productions said, In my early to mid-twenties, it was one of my five favourite movies ever. It has probably aged super poorly and I'm kind of scared to revisit it. And I just want to add to that, I don't think this movie has aged poorly at all. I think this movie is pretty timeless, actually. Don't be scared to revisit this movie. I genuinely do think this movie holds up very, very well, considering it's almost 20 years old. At I Am That Wiz said, One of the most creative films about relationships. Not only is it weird and creative, but it also talks about true feelings involving relationships and how they do and do not work. It's a realistic fantasy that bends your mind while making you think of your own relationships. Brilliant film. At Crutches McGee said, I was terrified to watch this movie. I put it off for almost a decade. And while I thought it was absolutely brilliant with great writing, acting, story, directing and editing, I don't think I can ever watch it again because of how hard it hits. One of the best ever made. At Char Char 571 said, I found it disturbing in a good way. And at Corona T said, This is one of my favourite films. The first time I saw this film, I left the theatre in stunned silence. I found it beautiful and sad and infuriating, but no matter how many times I watch it, I'm blown away by the love story that is Joel and Clementine. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet give Joel and Clementine so much heart and depth that I genuinely wanted this couple to figure out a way to work things out. This remains a film that I happily watch on a regular basis and it remains one of my favourite Winslet Carey performances. 
Let's move over to Instagram and we're going to start with at SP Film Viewers who says, This film has made it into my top 10 films of all time. Exceptional performances from all involved and the screenplay by the amazing Charlie Kaufman is top notch. If you're a fan of melancholy movies, I can't recommend this enough. At Nikolai's Kitchen said, Masterpiece doesn't even begin to describe its genius. Carey's best performance and Winslet has never been more charming. There's a feeling that transcends thought when we meet someone or connect to someone who sets our heart on fire. And this film is so perfect as showing why that flame can never be doused, even if we forget some things. Come back and make up a goodbye at least. Let's pretend we had one. There's no comments on Facebook or comments on threads, actually. Derek's was from threads, but I copied it and put it in the right place this time. Listen to the last episode if you want an explanation on that one. But as always, thank you to everyone for your comments on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And if you do want your comments read out in episodes, the thoughts posts go up on social media pretty much every Friday. I am at Verbal Diorama on or in all of those places. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and threads. And find the post, put a comment and I will read it out in the next episode and credit you as well. I know I've joked kind of throughout this episode about forgetting what we're talking about, etc. But I'm at a point where I don't really know what else I can say about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Not that I've forgotten, but the amount of information that it presents to you is so overwhelming that sometimes it's hard to dissect all of that information because it's so relatable to me personally. The comment by Crutches McGee, where they said about how they can't watch it again because of how hard it hits. Sometimes I feel that for me because this movie hits me so hard every time because we've all been in that situation in a relationship where things aren't working and you just want to delete that person. You don't want to think about them ever again. But also you don't want to let go of those happy thoughts, those happy feelings. You might not want to not think about a particular holiday you took together because the holiday was so fantastic. Just because they were there with you, you would have to erase that. You'd have to get rid of every single thing they ever bought you. Every single thing that you bought makes you think of them. Every single note, every single letter. And if we're talking about modern technology, how do you erase things on your social media? Facebook memories is one of those things that constantly grates at me because every time I go on Facebook memories, it brings up a memory of a particular ex. And I think to myself, I don't want you to remind me of this, Facebook. Why are you reminding me of this? And so while the premise of this movie was definitely a possibility back in 2004, with the advent of everything being on social media, I don't think it could be possible now. There will always be something on your phone, a particular photograph, a text message, a voicemail that reminds you of that person. Unless Lacuna can basically delete all of your social media as well. Possibly they can. I don't know. But this came out in 2004 and Facebook and Twitter kind of weren't a thing back then. Some things that I just want to highlight about this movie, Kate Winslet, she is always terrific. And one of the things I love so much about her in this movie is the nuance, the complexity, the fact that thanks to her, Clementine is a three-dimensional human being. Now, the Bannock Pixie Dream Girl thing wasn't actually created until 2005, but generally people do kind of point at Clementine about being a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But I don't think she is because Winslet's deft criticism of the screenplay and her layered, invaluable performance basically elevates Clementine to a point where she's actually not a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She's actually a real person. 
This is top tier Winslet. And as I say, you get Winslet in your movie when you want a quality performance and she always delivers. And Clementine is basically the top of that fantastic career. Together with Jim Carrey, their chemistry is believable and layered. And Jim Carrey's performance matches Kate Winslet's pretty much beat for beat as well. He uses his comedic physicality to create this very tightly controlled performance. His vulnerability is endearing and he layers Joel as yet another flawed individual. His memories are not totally truthful. And it basically shows us that even our minds can tell us something that's not there. Every single member of the cast, including Mark Ruffalo as heartbroken memory technician Stan, Elijah Wood as gaslighting creep Patrick, Kirsten Dunst as naive receptionist Mary, and Tom Wilkinson as the questionable doctor, all give outstanding performances in this movie. And I haven't even mentioned the subplot between Mary and Howard, how she's inexplicably drawn to him. And on first watch, it looks like a crush between an employee and her boss. But it turns out they've had an affair previously and she had her memories erased. An unused part of the script also had an unplanned pregnancy with Howard pressuring Mary to have an abortion before also erasing her memories of their relationship and their unborn child. And clearly the unborn child plot was crossing too much of a line, but Mary's realisation and anger is so justified, as is her reaction by quitting her job and mailing Lacuna's company records to its customers and therefore creating this chain reaction. Also cut for time were scenes with Joel's ex Naomi, played by Ellen Pompeo, in a nod to his previous relationship with Renee Zellweger, because apparently they look similar. I don't see it myself, but okay. Pompeo shot her scenes and Kaufman was insistent that they keep them. But leaving them out showed Joel as more spontaneous in his pursuit of Clementine, rather than him trying to work out his relationship with Naomi, as well as with Clementine. It basically didn't show Joel in the most positive of lights, that he was a guilty manipulator rather than his endearing shyness. Rather than have his relationship with Naomi fail because he fell for Clementine, the movie instead implies that they've already broken up and so you don't get that crossover between their relationships that you might have had if Naomi was still in the movie. I also haven't mentioned Elijah Woods. Brilliantly unhinged Patrick, so super creepy, so stalkerish, the ultimate gaslighter. And it's weird because I feel like in any other rom-com, he would be the lead character because the theft of her belongings while she was having her memory erased would be framed as being sweet or proof of how interested he is. And I love that this movie goes all out to frame him as this creepy new boyfriend and that Clementine just knows that something's off. Basically, what that tells us is trust your gut because if someone is too good to be true, then they probably are. And I just briefly want to talk about the editing of this movie as well because the fact we experience the story of Joel and Clementine backwards we watch Joel's memories unfold on screen as they're being erased, beginning with the most recent and finishing with the start of their two-year relationship. And this technique works because it gives us the impression that their relationship is getting better when actually the opposite is true. By the time the film ends, the painful recent memories have long since vanished and the audience is instead left reflecting on the enjoyable moments and ultimately yearning to see Joel and Clementine together. And this is regardless of the fact that we know that these two will inevitably bring each other pain. And so this editing feat is actually quite remarkable because any other movie would spell it out chronologically. But this movie doesn't do that. You actually do want to see these two people happy. Whether they will ever be happy, I guess we'll never know.
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind raises numerous ethical questions regarding the treatment of trauma, in addition to so many philosophical questions. But ultimately, it teaches us to embrace our pain. Don't look for a quick fix or run from it, because ultimately, neither will help, especially the quick fix. There may not be a lacuna ink in real life, but while the movie makes it clear this quick fix doesn't work, neither will drugs, alcohol, or anything else that you could take to numb the pain of that lost love. You're never going to change a person. They are who they are. Accept people for their flaws as well as their greatness. And it'll hopefully be a mutually beneficial and healthy relationship. You can't remould someone into your idea of perfection. And while we all have painful memories, they don't have to stay painful. Because our memories make us who we are. They encourage us to be better, to change our point of view. They make us strong and resilient. And most importantly, hopefully, to not make the same mistakes again. Even podcasts can come from painful memories. It would be more painful to relive experiences you forget about than live them once and then heal from them. The relationship between Joel and Clementine is fully fleshed out in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But by presenting this information in reverse chronological order, this movie actually does answer the ultimate question I asked at the start, that it is in fact better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And just by listening, you are involved in this podcast and you are helping this podcast grow. And I thank you so much for it. But if you do want to help a little bit more, you could do all of the following absolutely free. You could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You could also retweet or like posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama. Follow me, find me, retweet me and like me. Please like me. <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, and also Letterboxd as well. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast, where you found it. Help them download a podcast app because sometimes it's easy to forget certain things. Sometimes we all need a little bit of help. So let's just help each other a little bit more, mostly just in life, but also to listen to podcasts. Now, normally at this point, I'd recommend other episodes of this podcast, but honestly, I don't think I can. Because there's nothing like this movie in the back catalogue at all. So I'm not going to recommend anything else. But I am going to say, if you've not watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind recently, please go and rewatch it. Don't be afraid of rewatching it. Love hurts and it sucks. But there's always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a positive ending to the story. And I think that's what we all need to take from it. So the next episode, we're going from a relationship that you can't remember to a girl you can't forget. There's something about her. She's beautiful, bubbly, blonde, sweet and kind. She gave a gross-out comedy some serious heart and the Farrelly brothers their biggest hit. There's something about... Um... Oh, what's her name? I want to say her name is Mary. Yeah. There's something about Mary, which, like this movie, also contains weird, stalky guys obsessed with the lead character. So there's a definite link there. I love this movie. I haven't seen it in so many years, but I'm a huge fan of Cameron Diaz. So I want to talk about There's Something About Mary next week. So please join me next week for There's Something About Mary. And as I said, this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to help support this podcast financially, 
with buying things like subscriptions and new equipment and hosting charges and all of the stuff that basically keeps this podcast going, then you can join the amazing patrons at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. You can also give one-off tips as well if you don't want to subscribe. That is at verbaldiorama.com slash tips. Then if you do want to join the amazing patrons, they are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. You can also check out my merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me at verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, but also say hi on social media too. But you can also give me feedback or suggestions if you want to email me. Or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and you can fill out the little contact form on there. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can find the magazine that I write for and articles online as well. And finally... I figured you'd show your face around me again. I guess I thought you were humiliated. You did run away after all. I just needed to see you. And, uh, yeah? I'd like to um, take you out or something. You're married. Not yet. Not married. No, I'm not married. Look, man, I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm high maintenance, so I'm not going to tiptoe around your marriage or whatever it is you got going there. If you want to be with me, you're with me. Okay. Too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a f***ed girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Hmm, probably. I still thought you were going to save my life, even after that. Mm. No. It would be different if we could just give it another go round. Remember me. Maybe we can. Bye.